Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows. And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. It's a spin-off of our show, Reasons to be Cheerful. It's called Cheerful Book Club, and it's conversations with some of the best writers working in the world today. You'll really enjoy our chats with people like US broadcasting legend Rachel Maddow, literary giant Ian McEwan, and the big short and moneyball author Michael Lewis. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent Acast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Everything is Black and White Podcast. It's time for a special episode of Gibbo's Corner. I'm Andrew Musgrove and we're going to look back on 50 years since Newcastle last won a major trophy. That's the Inter City's first cup in 1969. And without further ado, we'll get started. I don't think any of us even dreamt that we'd be the last ones uh, to win a trophy. Um, but that's the way it's gone. They've been with one or two cup finals but they've never managed to win anything and... Uh, it's a shame. It's a, it's a real tragedy for the club and the supporters. You know, a club of that potential and that size. Um, to think they've not won anything major for 50 years is, uh, is amazing. So those were the words of Newcastle United legend Frank Clark, um, as I spoke to him about the anniversary 50 years since Newcastle won a trophy. And one man who joined Frank and the Newcastle United players on that amazing journey was John Gibson. He's here with me today. Uh, John, the same question to you. If you had known back then what you know today, that would have been the last time Newcastle lifted a trophy, what would you have said? Absolutely staggering. Like Frank, I simply wouldn't believe it because um, I'd watched as a kid Newcastle win the FA Cup three times in five years. I'd come back to the Chronicle to follow Newcastle in 66 and in 69. They won a European trophy, and I believed that Newcastle would go on and win trophies regularly. Domestic trophies, maybe it's the occasional second-tier European trophy, but not to win nothing. And yes, we got to 74 and two cup finals at the end of the 90s. But um, absolutely unbelievable for a club this size to go so long. But it makes these celebrations extra, extra special because without a shadow of doubt in terms of trophies and football as a result-driven game, this is the highlight of 125-year history of Newcastle United winning the European trophy. Uh, And 50 years to the day, wonderful. And most of the people, thankfully, that took part in that 
are still with us. The only notable people, obviously the manager who was that much older, we actually won the trophy in Budapest on his 50th birthday. It was his birthday the day we won it. Can you think of a better present to have than that? Um, we So we lost Joe and we've lost since Jackie Sinclair, the winger. Uh, John Hope, the cover goalkeeper as well. But apart from that, everybody's still around to enjoy the adulation they deservedly should get once again for what they achieved 50 years ago. Well, you held a talk in a few months back. And yeah. bear in mind, like said, it was two, three months before the actual anniversary. Mm. It was packed out. Absolutely it right. It was yourself, David Craig and Frank Clark. Frank had come from Nottingham. Um, yeah. A brilliant night, brilliant atmosphere. And just shows that taste. And it's a little bit unfair to say that the taste is there because Newcastle haven't won anything since then. Mm. Because it is more of a taste because it was such a great cup run. And, yes. And, and made up of players which were, you know, which do last long in the memory. I mean, Frank Clark was, was a fantastic fullback. Oh, there's absolutely no question about that. That team was vastly underrated at the time. Um, and I quite agree. This should be Newcastle United. That team should be recognised for what they were, even if we'd won two or three trophies since. Because you can never beat doing something the first time, you know. The first time you do anything, and that was the first time Newcastle won a European trophy. If they'd won three since, that is still the first time. That was the breakthrough season. And people mightn't, fans now mightn't realise the quality of the opposition that we played. Uh, on the way to winning that. We started off with Feyenoord, who were one of the great European sides of that moment, did well in the, uh, what is now the Champions League, did well in this cup. We went on, we played Zaragoza, we played Sporting Lisbon, we played Glasgow Rangers in the semi-final. They did, they did won European trophies uh, before. And Uspestosa in the final was quite amazing. I mean, the season Newcastle become Intercity's first cup holders that season Leeds United the great Leeds United team under Don Revy won the first division championship they only lost two games out of 42 as it was in in, in those seasons 42 league games they only lost two out of 42 to be crowned champions yet they lost to Uspest Doza in the first cup Home and away, Uspes won 1-0 down road and 2-0 in Hungary. And Don Revy came out before we played the final, first leg of the final, and said, this is currently the best side in the whole of Europe. Newcastle have no chance. Jock Steen, who was at Celtic, said exactly the same. Bill Shankly, who was at Liverpool, said exactly the same. Newcastle United beat them home and away, 6-2 on aggregate. And the beat. that Hungarian football at that time was right at the zenith. The national side, the international side had beaten England at Wembley, etc. They were a huge, huge nation. And Uspes showed in that first half in Budapest what a wonderful side they were. But Newcastle, with players of the quality of Bob Moncure, who was skipper of Newcastle, Skipper of Scotland, um, wonderful sweeper, scored a hat-trick. Frank Clark won the European Cup with Nottingham Forest as well as the first cup with Newcastle. 
Craigie was one of the best right backs you would ever see. Cultured, cultured player, Northern Ireland international. Wynn Davies was just a class above uh, as a centre forward. His ability to hang in the air went on to play for Manchester United and Manchester City. Um, Alan Foggin, teenager, scored in the final in Budapest. Went on to play for Manchester United. Went on in the North East to play for Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough and Hartlepool. Um, and was in the very good Middlesbrough side that won the championship under Jack Charlton. So it was a good team. So just before we get on to the actual final itself, two legs, mm. let's go right back to the pre-season. Um, Newcastle, I think it finished ninth. I'm not mistaken. Tenth. Tenth. I knew I was close enough. One way there. <laughs> Even and worse. Tenth. Tenth. Well, you know, it's not the worst achievement we could wear. hope for that today. Absolutely not. Um, finished tenth. And then they got the call to say, you into this competition because of the rules, which stated yeah. only one club from each city could be Correct. in the trophy. Correct. So... Would- I mean, going into the, into the final few games of that season, was the, was previous, that, the season. previous season was that known by Joe Harvey? Was that were, were they aware that this is that was going to be the not, case? Not really, not really. I don't think Joe ever thought uh, that far ahead. He was wanting to finish the season well. Manchester City come up here and won and and took the the title as a as a consequence. Um, and it wasn't really certain until the draw was the draw was made whether we were going to get into it or not because there was talk of cutting the league down. There was the talk of how many clubs would be allowed in from this particular country, etc., etc. And I remember Joe Harvey on the phone to me in the Chronicle office holding the line to see whether we were going to get in or not. Unbelievably, the line went down from where the draw was being made before Newcastle came out of the hat or didn't. And it was only when the line come back up and we suddenly saw Newcastle v Feyenoord that we even realised for 100% certain the tent was good enough to get us into the league. And we got in, yes, through the back door because only one side from London could get in, one from Birmingham or Liverpool or Manchester because they, they had extra clubs. We got in through the back door, but we marched out through the front door. Well, certainly. I mean, how proud was Joe of his side getting into this European competition oh, and having a chance to play on the continent. Hugely, hugely, because this is a guy that had come back to Newcastle, got the call because the club was on its uppers, the team was on its uppers. He'd completely rebuilt a side to get out of the second division and then he built another side to take that took us into Europe. And um, the wonderful thing about that was, looking back, was... The camaraderie, the team spirit was absolutely enormous. And so was the naivety. Uh, We didn't realise, we didn't get scared of the opposition because Joe was very clever. He didn't allow that to get through to the place. He didn't dwell when we got Feyenoord on how great a club Feyenoord were and how they were steeped in history. He dwelt on us and we blew them away 4-0 in the in the first game here and it was just as well because we went over there and lost 2-0 and were lucky to get nil how did the city react to the first the first game european game at st james's park i mean the city must have been absolutely buzzing oh phenomenal i mean they, they it really was it captivated the whole place they'd been used it was just in the 50s, and this was the end of the 60s, that Newcastle won the Cup three times in five years. So they, the fans were used 
to winning something. They were used to going to Wembley and win, unlike now. They were used to it then, but they'd never gone to Europe. Europe was a new boundary. Suddenly, you know, we weren't a little island. We were part of a huge continent, and we were going to travel all over the continent. And the Chronicle organised trips, which were packed out to go to all the away games, uh, Fans hitchhiked to the game. They, they, they took five, six days to get there and another six or seven days because we were through when we played to get back home. Um, and they travelled everywhere together. The interest was phenomenal throughout the season. And the incredible thing was nobody talked about us winning it. They just talked about, oh, and we're through, and oh, we've got now. Oh, let us enjoy it while it's happening. And we're still enjoying it in mid-June when we won it. So was that the kind of the message on the board as well that it's it, it's been a, it's an added bonus to what was a good season and and if you go out in the, against Feyenoord or you go out against Sportingism then then you know, so be it. you know we weren't going to be humiliated the wonderful thing when you first go into Europe is that you can't be humiliated you might get humiliated if you're Manchester United under Ferguson it's been in season after season after season but this was new to Newcastle so every victory was a bonus and every time they got through was a bonus but the most amazing thing is that they believed in themselves more and more the further they got and they didn't sort of panic we're now in touching distance when we got Rangers in the semi-final and and we had to go up there and play before 70,000 in Ibox terrifying and got a penalty against us early in the first half there was no panic there was always a belief now you could call it naive. Joe had this wonderful way, though, of diffusing tension in a team. He never overbuilt the opposition, which Don Revy was doing with England around the same time when Supermac was playing for England, as well as Newcastle United, just after the, the first cup. Uh, he never built up the opposition. He built up his own team. Um, and Newcastle... It's quite startling to think that how Newcastle dismantled Uspez Doza twice. And it's even more startling when you realise they only did it in 40, playing 45 minutes of the hour and a half in both ties. When they were at home in the first leg, it was not not at half time and it was as much Uspez game as it was ours. 45 minutes later, we've won 3-0. Out there... We were slaughtered first half. We were 2-0 down at half-time, which made it 3-2 to us. And it was only going one way. I was sitting next to Shaq and we were absolutely terrified in the press box. We were absolutely terrified. We said, well, you know, we've led 3-0. People presume when names on the cup, we ain't going to win it. And in 45 minutes, we scored another three goals. We scored three goals in 45 minutes here, three goals in 45 minutes there. That's not a fluke against the best side in Europe at the time. And whose best were that good? Was Joe Harvey, did he find it easier to attract players now that Newcastle were in Europe? Did he, who oh. did he bring in to help their European adventure? Yeah, without without a shadow of doubt, because what you've got to realise is that we didn't just win the European First Cup that season. We were in it three successive seasons, qualified for it and in it three successive seasons. Not once in those three seasons did a club beat us by goals over two legs. We won it the first season. The second season, we went out on away goals. And the third season, we went out on penalties at the end of a match that was tied at 2-2. 
extra time, still 2-2, went out on penalties. So no side actually beat us over two legs for three seasons in Europe. So it wasn't a fluke. How did Joe balance the league campaign compared with with the first cup because obviously not the easiest thing to do it isn't it isn't but the, the interesting thing and i think what he did well and perhaps he didn't once very significantly later on he let one run into the other try to keep going in the league do well in the league take the form into europe come out of europe with the elation of having got through take that into the league that worked the once he didn't do it was much later on in 74 when we were in the FA Cup and we beat Burnley in the semi-final with two wonderful goals from Supermark. Between the semi-final and the final, we didn't play. We just kept ourselves for the final. He put in a load of kids from the reserves with no experience at all, kept people back for the final. We were playing Shankly's Liverpool in the final. They just continued winning, winning, winning week after week. And you can't turn it on like a tap. And at Wembley, we didn't turn it on like a tap. We couldn't in a quarters. We hadn't done that in the... Uh, and I think because Europe was was home and away and it was well, the games were coming thick and fast, you know, there wasn't time to switch off and, and mess the team about. We played our best side, League, Cup and domestic trophies. So how did Joe de- uh, prepare for the, the, the ties? Did he go out prior to watch the teams? Yes, he did, he did, yes. And, and because he was a guy that knew how much this meant to, to his public. Um, did and the publicity and getting the fans on side and get, he would go immediately we knew who would do he would go out and spy on that side and he would take a gaggle of the press with him and inevitably I was one of those people and would go to the way games and we'd go and watch the side and Joe would sit with us up in the stand and uh, never made a note he left that to me to make the notes but uh, he was great vision great thinking about the situation and he was a tremendous tub thumper uh, he knew how to handle players because players were very very different and he could handle all the different personalities and he did so um, but also he was wonderful at signing people he bought quality, quality people, and he bought three separate teams. Uh, he bought Win Davies, for example, that significantly, you could say, won the first cup for us. And I know Bob got the hat-trick in the final, but it, Win was the guy Continentals just couldn't handle his style, which was so different in those days, they didn't see it on the continent. The six-foot-two, centre-forward, everything in the air, terrific in the air, could hang longer than any of them. Um, they weren't used to that sort of guy. And um, he bought the good players. When you look back, Joe, and I think about it now, Joe always loved players who could play. And he bought over the nine, ten years he was at St James Park some wonderful midfield players like uh, Tony Green and Terry Hibbert and Jinky Smith um, and Tommy Craig and uh, he had Tommy Cassidy, um, wonderful midfield players. Yet that side in 69 had midfield players who today a lot of people would call workhorses. It they didn't have the flair in midfield that, that his sides subsequently had. Um, 
Tommy Gibb was a box-to-box player, relentless box-to-box player, uh, in the way that uh, Terry McDermott was later, although Terry was the better player, he went on to play for Liverpool in England, for goodness sake. And Benny Amantoff was a, was a total grafter. Didn't have a flair player in midfield. Terrific defence, and a twosome up front in Davies and Pop Robson, that goals written all over them, and played w- with wingers. And yeah, if you're playing Davies, you had to play with wingers. Most certainly. Now you say that Joe liked to concentrate on his team, didn't really build up the opposition. Yep. But behind closed doors, privately, privately, if he saw a good team, if he went and out and watched Feyenoord, he went out and watched Sport and Lisbon. Did he ever say to you, "Goodness me, they they are they are a good side"? Was he different to what he said to you? To what or to what not, he said? Not not greatly. He would admit he would say, "Give all these can play." The, the, these are going to be difficult to play, but he, he had a phrase which which was crude but fun, and he used to say, "Aye, but they can't run without legs." The can't run. In other words, in those days, you could tackle at the height of a sock, you could tackle a little bit higher and get away with it. People like Tommy Smith and and, and uh, Norman Hunter and etc. made a living out of it. And Joe used to say, "Aye, you can play, but they can't run without legs." In other words, get into them, rattle the cage and they'll not be so, so clever on the ball. And continental players, that worked a lot. They didn't like, they weren't used to that sort of thing. The Uspes players, all ball players, but they all wanted to play at their pace. They wanted to be given time on it. They wanted to look pretty. And if you give them time, they'd massacre you. We hounded them. I mean, I, I think we press sides before it was called pressing. And... Um, the Continentals didn't like that, and then they didn't like the centre forward who was six foot two and all elbows. So they didn't like our physical approach. I hasten to add, we weren't a dirty team. Don't run away with that idea. But Joe was a physical player himself, and he didn't want any Nambi Pambis, as you would call them, in his side. He wanted what he called, he wanted to bring it to being a man's game. Before we actually get on to the games, I promise you we will do. But what was it like once your scouting mission had finished? Did you guys stay out there, have a few a few drinks, or was it straight back to right up the coffee? We, what was we, it? we stayed over. Uh, I mean, we always stayed overnight. Uh, if we were on a scouting mission, we would stay overnight. When Newcastle played out in Europe, the season when we won the, the, the title, we never came back the same night, which a lot of people uh, do these days. We always went out well in advance and came back the next day. And always the occasion ended up with us celebrating um, after the game. Uh, even when we played away the first leg and now there was a job to do at home. For example... Uh, we played Real Zaragoza on the way on the way to winning the trophy on New Year's Day. Can you believe that these days? A top European match being played on New Year's Day, which meant all the boys had to be tucked up in bed at midnight. In fact, they weren't. Joe allowed them to come down, have one drink at midnight to toast the New Year and then go straight back up to bed. That was a Cluffy type thing that Cluffy made his name for doing later. Um, but yeah... Uh, the whole thing was that it was a new experience and Joe wanted to make it memorable. And my Joe wasn't memorable in the end. So at which point do you think Joe realised that this was more than just a, just a trip in Europe? This was a chance to win some silverware? 
I think it only actually dawned on Joe. All the way through, he had a sneaking feeling we were going to do well, but it was how well. But once we do Glasgow Rangers in the semi-final, uh, that really concentrated minds because it was hailed as the Battle of Britain and all that sort of thing, as it would be. Um, and two huge footballing cities, Newcastle and Glasgow. You suddenly thought, if we get through this win a final. Now this is quite ridiculous. Uh, and he never looked ahead, he never put pressure on the team by talking publicly at any stage of that season about winning it. Um, but all of a sudden we knew where we were now close and particularly when we came back from Rangers with a note note. When we came back from Rangers with a note note Willie McFall had saved a penalty in front of 70,000 being, uh, well there was about 20,000 Geordies in the 70,000 crowd, so it wasn't 70,000 jocks. But we saved a penalty and we played in the whole game without the regular centre-half, Ollie Burton, because um, there was a tail there where Ollie used to room with a, a guy called Dave Elliott. Um, and Dave Elliott twice, first time at West Ham in the league the same season, went out for a walk on the morning of the game and suffered an epileptic fit, although we didn't realise at the time what it was. He just collapsed on the pavement. Ollie Burton was walking with him. Ollie was traumatised, naturally. There was panic on. Um, I was sitting in the Great Northern Hotel at King's Cross with Joe on the coffee on the Saturday morning when the phone call come through from Ollie. Boss, Dave's collapsed on his line. We've called an ambulance turned out to be an epileptic fit they didn't realise at the time. And lo and behold, when we went to Glasgow Rangers later uh, in the same season, the same thing happened, but not the morning of the game, I think the day before. The same thing happened where they went out for a walk, Ollie's walking with Dave, Dave takes a fit. It was only after that they realised there was an epileptic fit. Um, and... Ollie was so traumatised that the first time it happened against West Ham, that that afternoon he played in the team, we lost five or whatever it was. It was a game in London, whether it was West Ham or not. And he was dreadful um, because his mind was scrambled. So when this happened again with Dave, the boss said, hey, Ollie, you're not playing. And he pleaded the play, he said, no, you're not. This is a, a top, this is a semi-final of a European competition. And... We know what happened to you last time. You're worried about your mate. You don't know what's happened. So he played John McNamee, the cover centre-half. Now, that was a story in itself because John McNamee used to play for Glasgow Celtic and we were playing Glasgow Rangers. And, of course, John was made desperate Dan look like uh, a shrinking wallflower. And uh, inevitably, all the, the Scottish press made a beeline for John McNamee when it come out he's going to be playing that night. And, and because their centre forward is a guy called Colin Steen, who was Scotland's centre forward, very very good player, and uh, not being a shrinking violet, McNamee come out and said, uh, "Oh, I could play Steen on one leg," which was carried in all the Scottish papers up there, and they but said by yourself and were playing Rangers, and he played him magnificently. He played him absolutely terrific, John McNamee. Uh, so. Once we had got a result up there with McFall saving the penalty and McNamee playing for Burton under traumatic circumstances, I think it dawned on us then, yes, we can win. How are you doing there? It is David from the David McWilliams podcast and this is a Staycast from Acast. 
We're all following the government's advice right now. We're staying in. It's a little bit cocooning, but it's all working. So while you're staying at home, here's a recommendation of another great podcast. It's the Blind Boy podcast. He's an old mate. He's a great skin. He has extraordinarily interesting views of the world. Check it out. We're just going to hear another clip from uh, Frank Clark, who talks now about the first leg in which Newcastle uh, won 3-0 and Bob Monker Bob scored a double. Um, and yet, yeah, here's the clip. Let me get back to him upstairs, like you know. I mean, how can Monker score three goals in a cup final? Uh, just like unheard of, you know. And and great goals, all three of them as well, you know. Um, but they're a good team. Um, Don Revy said they were the best team in Europe. They knocked, uh, they'd actually not Leeds out of the competition earlier, and uh, we had a real, uh, a real tough job holding holding them out. In the f- even in the first leg. And uh, got into the second half, didn't it, at nil-nil, and then we got we got uh, a, a goal. I think Bob got the first one and the and the second one, and uh, and then Jim Jim Scott put the icing on the cake late on, but th- I think three nil flattered us a little bit in the first leg. To be fair, so there you have it, uh, John. Um, very open and honest kind of look at it from Frank. Mm. You saying you know three nil did it did flatter us, and was that the kind of feeling on the way back? Yeah, as I said earlier, we only played two offs in, in, in the two-leg final. We only played the second half of both games. We're not, not here, uh, and they were as good or better than us, and we were murdered out there. We scored three goals in the second half of St James's and three goals in the second half of Budapest. And, um, yeah, it's half time in, in Uzpest. I was happy if we were going to take anything of a lead over to Budapest. A three-goal lead, no chance. And two of them scored by a guy who would get a nosebleed if he went over the halfway line. Bob Bunker was supposed to stand as a sweeper in those days behind the centre-half, sweeping up. And he was magnificent. He, he, he was like Bobby Moore, who was England World Cup skipper. He was built like Bobby. He had the brain of Bobby. He had a passing range. And he had the lack of pace of Bobby. But with his mind was so quick that he didn't need the pace to get there nine times out of ten. Uh, he knew, he anticipated. But for him to score twice, uh, Jim Scott got the last one, as, as, as Frank was saying. That was an unbelievable lead to take there. Um, because whether you like it or not, you're in the box seat and your favourites, and everybody knows your favourites. But we knew whose best were better in their second half performance here. We'd seen glimpses of it and were better. And the, the, the thought was if they get off to a good start out there, then we're in trouble because they can play. And by Joe, we were in trouble. Well, certainly. I mean, and then there's a two-week gap yeah. between the first and second leg. I mean, the first of all, a two-leg final seems bizarre to most listeners today. Correct. But then a two-week gap to the final, I mean, were the nerves within the Newcastle United camp? Well, yeah, I mean, it was crazy. There were, there, it was just, I don't think there was nerves because 3-0, and if you're a good team, and Newcastle were a good team, at 3-0 you should be sitting in the box seat. Having said that, Barcelona was three against Liverpool and got beat, so these things happen. Um, I think it was the weight and it was also because it was the summer. The football season, we, we won the cup almost in the middle of June, for goodness sake. Um, quite, quite incredible. Um, I think 
there was all, they almost had a free throw of the dice. They thought they'd lost. They knew they were better than that. They were smarting on letting it go in 45 minutes and they were going to put on a performance in front of their own people. And my Jove, they did. And if we hadn't scored at the beginning of the second half in Budapest, right at the beginning of the second half, we would have lost mine. That was the goal that turned the tie. And who scored it? Uncle Bob yet again, Captain Bob. What was the feeling like in Newcastle in the, in the, in the days building up to the final? I mean... Was there a... The, the first leg here? The, the, the second leg. The, the second, second leg. leg. I mean, because obviously they'd, they'd taken the lead and, and Newcastle fans knew they were 90 minutes away from, from lifting the trophy. They did. And, and, and I mean, the real belief was that the name was on the cup and it was our name that was on the cup. And I think that it grew during the season. There was this belief that whatever the opposition was, and we got all sorts of varying opposition, uh, different quality... Uh, Etc. Etc. That our name was on the cup, and we knew we were playing a quality, quality side and a quality country, as hungry were then from the Puskas days, etc. Etc. Um, but there was a feeling that unless we tripped over our bootlaces, we were going to win it. And the reason why we did win it, there's always a load of heroes under whether and, and the obvious hero over the final was Bob Moncur, of course, because he's got a hat trick. Um, but you've got to say that Willie McFall's performance in the first 45 minutes in Budapest was very similar to his performance later in the semi-final of the FA Cup at Hillsborough when we played Burnley at half-time nil-nil he had played Burnley on his own. He had played Uspest on his own. And then we came away in both matches and won it. It was Supermac that did that in the FA Cup against Burnley. And it was Bob Moncur that did it again uh, in Budapest. But Willie McFall, who was slight for a goalkeeper, slightly built, not tall. He was a bit like Shea Given in stature. And he was a shot stopper. Uh, but a wonderful goalkeeper on his day should have had a mountain of caps for Northern Ireland. Didn't because Pat Jennings was the, the goalkeeper at the time, one of the world's best. But Willie went on and managed us and everything, as you know, and has a unique history at Newcastle United. But he, in that first 45 minutes, yes, he was beaten twice, but he could have been beaten five or six times, was outstanding. He kept us in, and Joe reminded the team at half time that we were three. Two up, not two nil down, which is absolutely correct. We were three two up, not two nil down, and if we scored one, they would just like a prick balloon, and we did, uh, and they were like a prick balloon. You could just see the air go out of them, and we went on to control them and win them. Benny Arantoff scored. Foggin went on as a sub and scored a goal. I remember Alan Hardacre, who was one of the top officials, he was the the uh, the top official in this country, but also in Europe, and he said afterwards to me, he said, if George Best had scored the goal, Alan Foggin had scored, we would have talked about it for it. Bestie was the, the messy of his day. And Alan looked a bit like Bestie in as much as he had long floppy hair, had a beetle haircut, that's what they called it. And uh, he scored a wonderful, wonderful winner on the night, 6-2 on aggregate. Most certainly. And that leads us into our final clip with Frank Clark. Um, here he is talking about the second leg. I really enjoyed the last 15 minutes of that game, one of the few games I could say I actually enjoyed whilst it was going on, you know, because we knew it was all over then. Um, 
and it was strange, but uh, in the first half, they absolutely gave us a right chase, and Willie McFall was magnificent, kept us in the game. We came in 2-0 down, we were hanging on, and we're sitting in the dressing room, everybody's got their chin on the floor, and Joe comes in and says, come on, get your chins up, nothing to worry about, all you've got to do is score a goal. That was the plan, and uh, Monk said to him, score a goal, boss, we can't get a kick. But he was right, because we, we went out and, and within a few minutes, Monk had scored again, which meant they then had to score I mean, to score two more, and they had to score at least three more just to get a, get a, get a draw. And they just it was like pricking a balloon with a pin, you know. They just... Collapsed, wow. yeah. And we, collapsed, yeah. the second half was a, was a stroll, you know. Benny got a goal, Benny Arentoft. And then young Allen came on and, and a great, great moment for him, you know. Well, there we have it. Um, again, great words from Frank, and I guess just highlights the man manager that Joe Harvey was. And we've heard countless people talk about it. Um, you've talked about it quite a few times on episodes, but mm. um, I mean that is really the famous saying in that Frank's um, recounted there. I mean, the one thing that is missing is the, is the full like a pack of cards. I think Bob Monker always yeah. uh, recounts. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it does show just what a man manager Joe Harvey was. Yeah. I mean. You could hear a pin drop in the dressing room. I talked to all the boys afterwards. You could hear a pin drop. The head was down. Sweat was dripping off the forehead under the floor. You could hear a pin drop. And Joe burst in, burst the door, nearly took it off his hinges. What's what's the matter with you? What, what are you? We're three two up, not two nil down. If you you all you've got to do is score one goal. Can you imagine saying that? Well, yes, that's all you got to do in football: score goals. Easier said than done. But he said, "You score one, and they're finished." And we did exactly that. And we did it at the right moment. You had to do it immediately. Because if you let them go quarter of an hour, 20 minutes knocking it about, even if you've kept it to 2 nil, they will be back in the smooth system that they had and they'll take us out of that. There's no question. Um, and Bob scored with a, with a volley. Uh, wonderful goal. And after that, you could just see us grow and them absolutely destroyed. It was a bit of a risk, though, by Joe, wasn't it? Because I think, I remember Bob um, on the, I don't know if people remember the Newcastle United History DVD, which came out, must be about 10 years ago mm. now. I watched that at the day, and Bob Monkers saying, I was looking around, we were nearly out of the interval, it was nearly time to go back out. I'm thinking, where's the manager? If anybody needs anyone yeah, out, it's the he manager. Came in late. And he comes in, says his piece, and doesn't say anything else, and walks straight out. He did that for effect. He didn't come straight in the dressing room. He knew they were going to be down. Uh, he wanted, because I talked to him later about it, he wanted to be short and sharp because that was a way to have an impact. If you go in and try to talk for 10 minutes, go over an hour, you're going to bring the doubts in as well as the plus points, you're going to over-ice the cake. He just wanted to go in, grab them by the scruff of the neck, lift the spirits, do a Churchill job, and out. And then they all go, yeah, ooh, hey, wait a minute, yeah, this could be right. And that's exactly what happened. And he did it for effect and the effect worked because Joe but yet that was Joe he he was captain of Newcastle in exactly the same way when he was captain of Newcastle Newcastle really didn't have a manager the manager was Stan Seymour but it's arguable that Stan wasn't the manager because he was the chairman he was a director he was the bridge Stan Seymour between the old days when Newcastle were run by a committee and there was no manager whatsoever and after Stan Seymour, there was Dougal Livingston, the 55 Cup final, Charlie Mitten, and after that, there was all managers. The bridge in between was Seymour. Most successful manager, 
won the FA Cup three times, or twice technically, because Dougal Lewis in 55. But Joe really. And Joe did that as a, as a skipper in the dressing room. He would do exactly what he did as a manager. He uh, virtually managed the side as a skipper. And he did exactly the same thing there. And he was somebody who believed in him. If he told if you, he told you black was white, you would think, ah, it probably is, actually. Uh, and he was very, very good then. A very tough man. I and mean, we have got an episode on, on Joe Harvey, so head over to the podcast platform yeah. and search it. You can listen to it. But we'll continue on about Joe. Very tough man. History in the army, but I bet there was a, a tear in his eye when that final whistle went, and, oh. he, and he realised he he had done it. Oh, I, I mean, he stayed up all night having a drink with the boys. He led the singing of Bladen Races on the coach uh, after the game. Uh, you've got to remember too; it was his fiftieth birthday. Can you? Isn't that? Wonderful that you have your birthday on the day that you manage us. I mean, you couldn't, if you wrote that in Hollywood script, you'd say, eh, it's too sugary, it's not true, you want to get a life. It was true. Um, and he was, he had a lovely human touch and he was a warm man. He was a frightening man when he had to be frightening and when he had to be the tough guy, he looked like Desperate Dan and he was Desperate Dan. But when everything was over and it was achieved, he was one of the warmest men. And I think when you have man management skills, you don't manage by fear. The nearest we got to a successful manager managing by fear was probably Brian Clough, uh, because there was always a bit of fear in, as well as the arm around the shoulder with Brian. But, uh, but with Joe, those on the inside, people like... Frank Clark, like Bob Monker, like Supermac that come later, like Terry Ibbett, would talk wonderfully about the warmth of the man. Just explain then the first moment that you spoke to Joe after that final whistle. Interesting thing, I came rushing down from the press box upstairs, I'm talking down, and we had access straight into the dressing room in those days. Rushed downstairs, came along... First thing I saw was Van Clark coming in. He came in the other side of a long, long corridor from the tunnel. I came in this side from the press box, saw him, and we just ran at each other, flung arms round each other. Unbelievably, he played and he had a ring on. Unbelievably, because he played with a ring on, and it, it cut me eye. So on most of the photographs, there's a little nick on the eye, and I couldn't have cared less. We're then going to go in the into the dressing room, arms round each other, and I, I saw... Benny Arentoff, full gear, on a public telephone. And I said, hey, hey, Benny, how are you doing? There was no mobiles, as you know, in those days, 1969. And he's on a public telephone, in the hall, speaking to somebody, full kit, sweat. Went in the dressing room, the, the pots brought out, filled with champagne, Lord Westwood hands it out, Joe's sitting in the corner, kiss, wink, hand up, happy birthday, Joe, yeah. Everybody's milling around, and then the door opens, and in comes Benny to join the celebration. I said, well, what are you doing, Benny? Said, I said, I was phoned back home, you know, he's Danish. He was on to a Danish newspaper, that, and he was filing a, re a match report that he'd agreed to do for the paper 
back home. Now, how on earth, in his match report, he described our second goal equaliser on the night because he scored it. I'm not certain. And can you imagine? You've got to remember, this was different times. This was a European final. Can you imagine Steven Gerrard when, when he was with uh, Benitez and they, they won the European Cup, phoning the Liverpool Echo in, in his red strip to give them a match report on the game? Um, or Wayne Rooney when he was with Manchester United or, or, or Cantner? You can't imagine it, can you? But that's what Benny Arantoff was doing. Um, and the celebrations just never, never ended. And we had a local chant, a lad called David Macbeth, who ran a nightclub in Newcastle, so he knew all the players, especially me, because I seemed to spend a lot of my Saturday nights in the nightclub. I ended up in there. David Macbeth, I called him, a lovely, lovely man, fervent Newcastle United fan. Big Big singer of his day, Kruner, Hello Mr Blue, had gone into the hip parade, uh, sang by him, etc, etc. He sang in the nightclub and, of course, he led the singing that night. Uh, we sang all night. Uh, Joe was up singing. David Macbeth was singing. John McNamee, whose birthday was as well as Joe Harvey, John McNamee's birthday, and he was a big desperate Dan character with a little falsetto voice that was right up here. He was singing... Uh, Frankie Clark, of course, who was a terrific singer and guitar player, who's now, incidentally, and he's, he's formed his own group. In, at this age of life, he's formed his own pop group, which plays around Nottingham, and he plays in that. So I had plenty of chanters to, to give us the entertainment. We went back once to uh, St Margaret Island in the middle of the Danube, and the party just went on all night. Come back well hung over with the trophy into Newcastle Airport, doors opened, Bob was told he had to go out with a cup, he was embarrassed because he thought, why? There'll not be anybody there, we're just coming in, we'll, we're going down to St James's, there'll be a few in St James's. He said, if I've got to walk out with a cup, you feel a right idiot, nobody will care. Walked out with a cup and the, the place was lifting with fans all the way down from the airport to St James's Park, continuous um, fans all the way, Bob's waving this cup about. At one stage, it goes into overhead cables, almost lights up with, with sparks coming off it, and there was a huge black scar on the trophy for the rest of the time when it was returned to UEFA in time for the, the, the next season. Um, but wonderful, special, special memories. And if anybody deserved it, Joe Harvey deserved it because he fashioned winning Newcastle sides. They won the second division championship in style to take us up. We won the European First Cup. We got to the FA Cup final against Liverpool in 74. They won the Anglo-Italian, which wasn't easy because you played one-off matches, not two legs. And we had a win against Roma in Rome and we beat Fiorentina in Full House in Florence in the final. They're not easy. He won trophies all his way, not one relegation in his um, CV as a manager. Terrific, terrific guy. And arguably, is he the, the greatest manager Newcastle's ever had? The only one that can challenge him is Keegan. And you would put Joe Harvey for trophies. If winning trophies is the name of the game, Joe Harvey stands alone. If there's a little bit more, you can put up winning a European trophy, Harvey against finishing second in the Premier League and building the entertainers. The best side I've watched in terms of football ability, the best Newcastle side. So is it Keegan 
or is it Harvey? I'm just delighted we had both. Two things that strike me. First of all, um, just look at your face and how happy you are when you're talking yeah, about that. I mean, you bet I'm happy. Would you say, I mean, because everyone knows you're a Newcastle United fan, but obviously you've had a, a, a long career. Is that is that the peak for you in terms of covering Newcastle United as a reporter and as a fan? The, the, the peak in terms of being a Newcastle United fan who was lucky enough to be allowed to travel for now all over the world with them, the peak was winning the first cup. There's been individual peaks since beating Barcelona in the Champions League, a one-off, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful night. The whole of the entertainers from beginning to end, the build-up of it from the moment... Uh, Sir John Hall got in and brought Keegan and we went from the brink of the third division to runners up in the Premier League with some of the greatest players, flair, flair players we've ever had, including Alan Shearer, Dyson on the cake at a world record. I mean, I think Kevin Keegan would have had overlapping goalkeepers if he could have done, never mind centre-halves. Um, so there's wonderful peaks and they're all peaks. But if you're going to talk about the one, you know, the wonderful feeling of winning a meaningful trophy in Europe and being a Newcastle United man standing up in a press box and saying, yes, we've done it. I want Newcastle United fans who are younger than me that have never experienced that and love the club as much as me. They can't love it more than me because I've loved it from cradle to but they can love it as much. I want them to experience that because they deserve to experience it and they ought to experience it thank, following a club as big as, as Newcastle United is. I want them to experience that because that is the greatest feeling in the world. Yeah, we've experienced getting to two or three FA Cup finals, but the highlight's been the semi-final win, not the final appearance because the final appearance hasn't been good. Um, but it, it's a terrific thing. I don't want to win the championship and parade the pot round because we shouldn't be in the championship. I want to win the FA Cup, the League Cup or Europe. I'm not stupid enough to say the Premier League. Although twice in my lifetime, two successive seasons, we've finished runner-up. So, you know, how close did we get then? Especially the 12 points from Manchester United. But please, God, let us win something again. Long overdue. I'm going to celebrate and I'm celebrating this 50th anniversary like there's no tomorrow and it was an absolute privilege to have been there the one consolation to be as old as I am is that I actually saw them win in 1969 I just pray that we don't wait much longer for Newcastle United to win again because believe you me it's the best feeling in the world yeah, yeah most fans will share um, that hope just secondly there, you were talking about the relationship with the players, you were in the dressing room straight away. Mm. Um, firstly, did you manage to get your copy file? And secondly, I think fans, on a serious note, will be surprised at just how open the access was. Oh, it's a totally different world now. Um, it's a totally different world now to what it was then. Um, there, was there was accountability. You fell out with managers, you fell out with players, but it was much more open. We were totally part of the team there wasn't just players become your personal friends managers become your personal friends I, I you know I had people like Irving Natres and Bob Monkeo being god uh, parents to my kids I've, I was Malcolm's best man Malcolm <coughs> McDonald when he when he got married um, 
they become close, close, close friends. And you had an access like never before. That doesn't happen now. There's a rather more of a detachment than there was in those days. And that give you an awful lot of warmth, an awful lot of feeling that you were part of the thing because you really were. And that friendship has gone on. I'm friends to this day with every one of the of the first cup team. And those that perhaps like Wayne or Tommy Gabe, that perhaps I was a little bit more distant with at the time because they were more withdrawn as young men, they were more suspicious, they didn't want publicity. They've become warm and close friends and Wynne said to me since Gibbo, you know, he was. it wasn't with me personally, it was the way he was with the press. He wasn't the press man's delight whatsoever. But he says, I wish that I had a, a bit more trust, a bit more camaraderie because... You know, this was the highlight of my career playing here. And he went on to play for Man United and Man City. Um, but wonderful, special days, and you feel a privilege to have been part of them. And like most Geordies, we haven't got a lot to cling on to, but I'm a, my cup is always half full, not half empty. And I've always got a feeling that we're not too far away from it happening again, when I've got no right to feel that, because nothing has led us towards that. But... It will happen without a shadow of doubt because of the size of the club. We don't want to wait another 50 years. We don't want to wait 52 years. Let it happen now and let's get on with doing it. The game of football is supposed to be to entertain. When you've got a club of this size, entertain them, give the fans something, let everybody be happy. It's not Football is not supposed to produce aggression and negative thinking and, and, and feeling hungover it's supposed to make you walk 10 feet tall let's do that again we did it 50 years ago we never thought we'd wait this long we've had to let's get it back quicker the better well that is probably going to be the answer to my final question it was going to be <laughs> just sum up that trophy win and, and, and a message to whoever might be Newcastle United owner about the importance of of tackling cup competitions and giving the fans something to cheer about? The win was sensational. We, I knew at the time we were never going to quite better it because I wasn't certain we were going to win the Champions League uh, or the European Cup, as it was called then. Uh, so I knew it was a very, very special moment. The way I felt at that moment and the way the whole of Tyneside felt uh, you knew that you could die happy. Uh, there was no need for them to take that at face value and win out afterwards because I had had my moment. Um, but you've you've got to enjoy these things. With a club of Newcastle side, I cannot understand how a club of Newcastle United's size, whoever owns it, I cannot understand them feeling that survival is enough, that survival in the Premier League is good enough. It may, with the utmost respect to these clubs, it may be a huge achievement for Watford, it may be a huge achievement for Brighton or for Cardiff when they first come up, for, for Huddersfield 
clubs with history, but not our sort of history. It is not a big achievement for Newcastle United merely to survive in the Premier League. We should be winning something. We've got, we've got 52,000 packing this. We have it in the season when we're relegated and we'll have it in the championship season. They, those fans ought to be rewarded. Now, if I'm an owner... And I'm certain that Rafa gets that feeling because that's why he stayed around, because he knows how close or how far away he is from... He's within touching distance of doing it if he's allowed to do it. But if I owned the football club, I would want to put my mark on that club. I would want to be able to say when I left, we won that or that or that. Or we had a darn good go at doing that. We didn't win anything... And with the entertainers, with Kevin Keegan and when I helped the Magpie group get in, won nothing. But I tell you what, we went to second top of the Premier League and produced the most entertaining football Newcastle fans have seen in an awful long time. We have got to get back to winning that. And if we don't start, why do we not try to win the FA Cup or the League Cup? Oh, I know why. Because we're too busy fighting against relegation. Let us be a mid-table side, a 7-10 to 10 side, and go out and win domestic cup. Take this lot back to Wembley and win at Wembley. Give them something. I can't understand what, what is in it for an owner if you don't try to put in your little footprint on the history of a big club. That's what's got to happen here, and it's got to happen quick. Well, there you have it, and I'm sure you will all... Agree with Gibbo. Thank you very much for joining us. There's going to be plenty of coverage um, on the Fairs Cup anniversary. Please remember to like and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you're listening through. I've been Andrew Musgrove and this has been the Everything is Black and White podcast. Thank you. Hi there, it's Caroline Foran from Owning It, the Anxiety podcast, and this is a Staycast from Acast. Please, please, please do follow the government's advice right now, which is currently to stay at home where possible. The sooner we all get on board with these measures, the sooner we will be all together again. While you're staying at home, here's a recommendation for another great podcast for you to listen to. I think we need a bit of comic relief more than ever, so why not try the Two Johnnies podcast, available on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts.